0: Welcome to the Acres of Diamonds podcast with Bob Larson, a nationally recognized expert in the analysis of complex life insurance structures. In the Acres of Diamonds podcast, Bob talks about the flip side of owning a life insurance policy that your client has outgrown, Or that has underperformed. We share insight and strategies to help advisors maximize the effectiveness and value of their clients' life insurance policies.
1: Hello, and welcome to Acres of Diamonds with Bob Larson from the Settlement Masters. Today, I'm excited we're going to be getting into some more questions and answers with Bob, and uh, I just want to first welcome him to the show. Bob, how are you? I'm good, and thank you for inviting me. Well, of course. This is your show, and I'm, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> so, um, Bob, we're going to do just a – before we dive into the, the thick of this podcast, I want to go back just a little bit and have you do one more review. What does the settlement industry look like today, and how has it transformed over the years?
2: Well, it dates back so far that you have to go back to know that in 1915 when the courts – we're looking at life insurance being purchased by an investor. They, at that point, declared settlements, a settlement of a life insurance policy to be uh, real property. Mm. So when it did that, it took on a character that has taken this industry to where it is today. A lot of things have happened, uh, and that will tell you in this uh, interview, but the industry today uh, is evolving. It has evolved today to be a highly compliant industry. And I'm excited to answer your questions.
1: All right. Then let's just dive right in. Anybody, I mean, I'm assuming when this first first opened up, there was a lot of maybe uh, competition to get involved in buying these policies. But how did the investment world specifically get involved in buying policies?
2: Well, uh, Eric, that's a good question. Early on, investors, individuals were buying policies on individuals. And that had a kind of a weird uh, taint to it. Mm-hmm. So the investment community has been very tied to the insurance, the issuing of insurance uh, industry for many, many, many years. And they recognize that, that life insurance is sold based on some economic and statistical information. So they begin to look at what kind of statistics would drive their, their rate of return and once they found that it was attractive that there was an opportunity to almost peg a return rate based on certain acquisition uh they got very involved in it, it you know it's like the sheep following the sheep when one investor group began to uh, to invest in the life insurance settlement world back in 1925 1930 they became popular by the kind of returns that they were getting by purchasing the right kind of life, life insurance contracts in volume, it became uh, of more interest to the general investment community. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, you see somebody going in a direction and they're finding success, you, you tend to follow that person and find out what's going on. So <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Again, now now this was new for them, right, for the investors. They had obviously done research. They found out, hey, this is, this is going to be positive for us. Now, the next question is, how did those investors determine what they could or what they would pay for a policy?
2: Uh, this is something that we explain to all of our advisors and to all of the clients of the advisors, because it's important for them to understand that an investor buys a contract in volume, buys them in a pool. They buy them in lots of 100, uh, 200, sometimes more they look at the policy and they determine the life expectancy, which is a factor that says this client, based on their medical records, should live approximately five to six years. Now, life expectancy, I'll explain a little more later, but it is really a a mark of 50% of the people that are uh, given a five-year life expectancy, for an example, uh, will have been dead have died five years from now and 50 percent are still live, living. Hmm. So the investor looks at the life expectancy based on medical records and they deter- and they look at the, the carrier quality uh, and they look at the amount of premium that's required to carry the contract to 100. and they have scientifically determined what it is that they can pay, what amount they can pay to drive that return. And I get investors that tell me I want 14% a year, I want 15% a year. Higher the rate of return that they want, the greater, the tighter, I should say, the tighter qualification the policy has to fit in.
1: Can you expand on what those qualifications are a little bit?
2: Yeah. in uh, an individual, when, when someone, when an advisor recommends a client to uh, to us, I can tell you uh, a case example when uh, we had an invest, uh, uh, advisor that referred a case to us and the, and the client was 79 years old. The first thing that we did is we looked at the investment community. What were, the, what were they requiring in terms of rates of return? Uh, we knew that that the 17% return rates per annum, that type of fund required a six-year life expectancy or less. So we collected all the medical records uh, we went to two independent actuarial firms. We asked for and paid for a report that would give us a report that would determine their life expectancy. And that's not just a dart throw. It is an mm-hmm. actual scientific approach, just like insurance companies use, Eric, when they're issuing life
1: insurance. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And, and, the, and the actuarial company will tell us uh, that this client has a four-year or six-year life expectancy. Well, with that, and together with the policy, we order specific illustrations that try to drive what the cost of this policy, carrying cost of the policy, is going to be to age 100. Mm-hmm. We package it, do a cover letter, and then send it off to the uh, the provider community, which I'll explain in a minute.
1: Got it. Some people might think it's morbid. I mean, we're talking about death here, but that's just part of life, right? Death and taxes. Nobody likes taxes and nobody likes death. But for those that that have these policies that they may or they realize that their life might not be going on for the next five to 10 to 15 years, this is such a, a blessing to them to be able to turn this failed policy into something that they can provide for their family. So I, I think it's fantastic. And people need to get over that little hump of uh, this is kind of a creepy subject sometimes. But it's life and it's death. And and so now I want to switch. I want to go from death to birth, if that's okay. Is that okay with you, Bob?
2: <laughs> that's fine. <yeah.
1: laughs> so uh, I love my mom, Bob. I'm going to tell you that right now. And I still have to apologize to her because I was almost 10 pounds when I was a baby. And so I can't imagine the birthing pains that she went through. And I know that everything in, in industry-wise has to have some sort of birthing pains and the settlement industry is no different. So, when looking at that, what were some of the early problems that the industry had as it was going through its birthing pains?
2: Let me just make a comment about your your you're calling the the issue of death uh, a negative or a hard thing for people to swallow. Mm-hmm. Let me just uh, refer back in 1915 when it was declared real property. Life insurance is an asset class, and when it, True. when you when you sell an asset class you have to look at that vehicle as an independent piece of property. And yes, you're tied to it. But the fact is, when a company buys a company, it's tied to the president or the management team to make the company continue. When an investor buys a policy, they're buying it in tandem with the individual. So it is real property. Uh, and I've got to move people over the fact that this is not being bought by one at a time. This is being bought in a pool. Exactly. So, so there's a little bit of anonymity, and there's a little bit of, uh, or I should say a lot of anonymity, and a lot of uh, volume uh, statistical probability. Your question was, in the early stages of this, uh, from 1915 to current, what was going on initially that was, was not good for the industry? Yeah. One- uh, small groups were buying life insurance companies. A guy in Beverly Hills had a buddy. They're golfing. And on the golf course, he says, you know, I heard about this thing called life settlements. And if we can find some 80-year-old uh, people that are not interested in keeping their life insurance policy and they got some health problems, I, I, you know, I think we if we buy enough of them or even that one, uh, we might have a, a good investment. So that began to f- form nationally, little groups uh, of people, uh, investor groups. Uh, they had no idea how to price these mm-hmm. contracts. They knew if they had some medical records. And so they had just been a swag, a, a scientific wild ass guess as to what the pricing on this policy could, could look like. So they knew what the carrying cost was. That was problematic because one, small investor groups, you don't want to have your mother, as you referred to. Uh, And loving your mother to be owned, a policy being owned by an investor group that knew where she lived. Exactly. That knew uh, all the things about her and had more incentive on her not living than living. Uh, That was not good. It it created a cloud over the industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bad pricing. What happened in bad pricing contracts, frankly, many of the, the contracts that were purchased were totally underfunded. And they lapsed as a result of them lapsing. The investor lost his money, and worse than that, the the seller, the client, spent an effort, even though they kept the money, which is fine, but they spent part of their insurance capacity because hmm. everyone has a limited amount of insurance they can buy based on their net worth. So some of the early problems was it was really the wild, wild west, so it yeah. really was nothing overseeing the the industry.
1: So it's had a lot of time by now to get itself straightened out and and every, you know, through those birthing process and growing, things mature. And so how did the settlement industry organize itself to be able to address these things? And how did they address them?
2: Well, there was an organization uh, that was formed called LISA, Life Insurance Settlement Association, and they really are the regulatory legal body in the industry. And they got they looked at the industry and they said, we have to organize this in a way in which one, we can protect the client, protect the investor and protect the advisor by having an organized process. So they created uh, what is called a provider and a provider is someone, if not someone, it's a firm that does nothing but manage the uh, block of policies. They buy them for the investor they they evaluate them for the investor they are responsible for pricing the contract for the investor and so the provider was really had became become before there was any regulations became the the watchdog on what was purchased for the investor groups the investor groups at that point were larger funds pension funds and so on Uh, Then they developed a broker community because they knew that unless they had a way of being able to reach out to the advisor community and find these policies, they wouldn't have a business. And so they developed a broker community that had to be registered with them. Providers then, uh, you know, I'll tell you about state regulations in a minute, but the fact is the industry really organized this. They had brokers and then there are the advisor who's the hands-on with the client. So there's four parties in every settlement, the investor, the provider, the broker, and the advisor.
1: Got it. I don't want to stay on the negative here, Bob, but what are some of the other problems that had to be resolved as this matured?
2: Well, you know, like every great thing, people take advantage of it. This has happened to the pension world. It's happened to just a lot in Mm -hmm. the tax world where people stretch the envelope. To try to make it more op- opportune for things they want to get done, and in in uh, the late 90s, there were a group of people that came into the industry that saw because life insurance was real property and it had had a buying community behind it, they could they could sell people, sell individuals on the idea of buying life insurance, uh, and and putting it in force and selling it in the, at the end of two years, which is the incontestable period. And it had, to, it had to be two years before a buyer would buy anything. And they called this stranger-owned life insurance in that the owner uh, was a bank backing this transaction, and it was non-recourse financing. So in, in effect, someone would go to a client and they would say, uh, Eric, you're probably not gonna buy life insurance uh, you have a life insurance capacity, that if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, that life insurance capacity is a, a, a multiple of your current net worth. And so why don't we exercise this capacity? We'll buy some life insurance, a bank will pay for it. At the end of two years, you'll either sell it and we'll split the fees uh, on, the, on the sale, or you'll give it back to the bank. And so that became a trend and millions, hundreds of millions of life insurance were sold on that basis.
3: Hmm.
2: It was a a greed sale. It was a commodity sale. It was so different than the way in which the life insurance industry was built. The life insurance industry was built on the needs solution base. And the Stoli, as they called it, the stranger on life insurance, it became a cancer in the life insurance industry. And, and at that point, uh, you know, it finally uh, ended up being stopped by the uh, a, a process, of you care to know, I'll give you that background. But it got stopped because it was wrong for the client. It was wrong for the insurance company, which made it wrong for the community.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And at that problem, at that uh, date, there was no commission standard. I was in New York one time with a group of advisors. And I was, this was back prior to forming Settlement Masters, and I was talking to the The group that had some settlement experience and they were bragging about the fact that they were selling contracts of insurance let's say a guy had a, a, ca- a cash value of thirty thousand dollars and the, the agent got one hundred and sixty thousand for the policy uh, and he would tell the client that you you got i got eighty thousand dollars for you instead of your thirty thousand of cash value and the buyer because there was no disclosure Requirements. The buyer wouldn't know any different. The advisor was taking half
0: of the total
2: value of the sale, Mm -hmm. and I thought, "Wow, that's totally unconscionable." I can't even believe they do that. And then, because there was no transparency rules, nobody knew about it because it wasn't disclosed. There was no disclosure standards. The client had no idea that the policy was sold for one hundred and sixty; he only got eighty. He was happy because he had 30,000 cash value,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but uh, the policy uh, and he got 80,000 for it, but it was wrong. That is absolutely the wrong thing. It's ridiculous.
1: Thing. Yeah, it's r- absolutely ridiculous. Um, it's just taking advantage of people and that's, that's a shame. Um, you mentioned earlier about state regulations. Can you kind of share your thoughts on that? I mean, does the settlement industry have specific state regulations as opposed to federal or how does that all work?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Well, because of all these problems, because uh, people were taking advantage of the client and not being transparent. As always, the state regulations, the state regulatory bodies, the life insurance uh, regulators, they stepped in and they said, this is not good. Uh, We have to do something about it. As of right now, 43 states have specific settlement regulations that monitor the industry relative to commissions, relative to uh, transparency, and, and it's, uh, it's good. Uh, it hasn't gone too far. Eight states uh, actually have implemented, so far, and this is spreading across the country, have regulated uh, that, that uh, carriers must notify any client over 60 that is cashing in or lapsing a policy, getting rid of it, not paying for it, uh, that they must be notified that a settlement is a good option. And frankly, that's that's excellent because that does give them uh, the opportunity to take advantage of the option if it is it pertinent. Uh, in Georgia, one state so far, uh, they penalize carriers uh, if they threaten advisors regarding settlements. Mm. So, and, and they did that because with all that's gone on, the Stoli market, the lack of transparency, the commission uh, uh, issues, with all that's gone on, Carriers got too hard on the advisor community. To say you will not sell a life insurance contract uh, and then sell it, or you will not talk to an existing client about selling their policy, or we'll penalize you. And so the state stepped in and said, "Whoa, you know this is a good option." Mm-hmm. The Discrimination against seniors act has been clear has clarified the fact that people need, in the right situation, to know about this option. So, you know, that's what's happened. I mean, the regulations haven't gone too far. Uh, the, the, a lot of it's been cleaned up uh, relative to the issues I've discussed.
1: Yeah. And, and you've already touched on this a little bit, but for advisors that are listening to this who want to be proactive in the settlement business, is there anything else they should know about providers and funds?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's you still have to know uh, if the provider buying the contract is a provider that buys and and flips, as a current uh, uh, word in the real estate business, flips it to another fund. You want to know that because if if you don't know that, the broker and or the agent or the advisor, if they're not savvy, would not have any idea that in the price the provider gives you, there is a up, uh, there's a profit section in that price that they're going to take, and mm-hmm. they don't give that information out today. That's still not required in transparency. Mm. So you want to know if the provider is doing that, or if the provider is a perpetual fund, which is a fund that keeps the contracts in the fund of funds that they have and doesn't flip the contract. You you want to know that. You want to know also, I'll give you a, a case example of this. You want to know also if a Pro- provider and or broker has the habit of going around the advisor. Uh, if they go around the advisor, then that's problematic, meaning going directly to yeah. the client and saying, you know, we don't need this advisor or even we don't need the broker. We'll deal with you direct. you get more money that way. The problem with that is the, the buyer, the seller of the contract has no idea what they're stepping into mm-hmm. and they, they don't know even the questions to ask. And so this happened to me. I, I had a great client. Uh, we were, the, the client had done exceptionally ad, exceptional advanced estate planning, had no more need for the life insurance, uh, and was going to drop it. Uh, we were looking at the idea of settlement. What we do is we show them all the way, show the client all the ways they can keep the policy, and we compare that to the economics of selling it. They decided to keep it and that was a good thing for their family. and Both are deceased now, so it was a great thing for the family, and they could afford it. I let it go. They were still my client. I'm still servicing them. Our firm was very much in touch with this client. It was a very large client. Uh, They called me about three months later, and they said, by the way, we just got a call from ABC provider, and they said they could give us so much more by not using you. Hmm. And I thought you know, what the hell is this about? You know, somebody is going around me. So that's something that an advisor needs to know about. You need to work with a a broker that will provide protection against that kind of thing.
1: Mm -hmm. And and in recapping a lot of this, Bob, you've been around for a very long time in this industry. You've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. You've seen a lot of the things where people took advantage of the situation, advantage of the the clients. Um, So that that kind of leads me to believe you're very passionate about it and why you got into this business. But why don't you give us a, a really clear picture of why you chose in 2008 to open Settlement Masters?
2: Well, I've given you the example before. I can tell you that the simultaneous to that example back in 2000, actually in 2007, I got a call from a, an attorney up in Northern California that we had worked with uh, probably two years before. And they said that they had a client because of the impact of the economic mm-hmm. uh, downturn that they wanted me to talk to the client about anything he could do with his insurance portfolio to help him reduce his expenses. So I called him. He was a large clother that manufactured and had clothing outlets around the United States. And and the chairman of the the, the, the company was the client they wanted me to work with. So I got, gathered all the information. I found out he had two term contracts that were about to expire. He had to do something, either convert them uh, or he'd lose them because after the term period is up, mm-hmm. the insurance goes away if you have term. So uh, we gathered it. We found out that the contract uh, was very viable in the settlement industry. So I, I probed a little bit more with the client and I said, what do you need to do to get out of this financial situation that you're in? And he said, I need to develop a national por- uh, uh, catalog. And I said, well, why don't you do it? And he says, it costs a half a million dollars and I don't have the money. And I said, what would, you, what would you do if we could find the money in your life insurance? And he said, Bob, there isn't any cash value in my life insurance. The policy to keep the policies on the term policies and convert them I can't afford it. My accountant has told me I don't need them. My estate shrunk. I said, OK, let me go through the analysis that we do. So we went through all the analysis of how I could keep the contract. We did a net present value analysis on selling it. So I called him up and I said, Pat, his name is Pat. I said, Pat, uh, how soon do you need the half a million dollars? And he said, Bob, don't you know, I told you I don't have any. My bank's pulled my line of credit. Because of the downturn, mm-hmm. and I, I'm, I'm struggling to survive. Don't play with me. I said, no, I'm serious. I have the half a million for you. In fact, I have $900,000 for hmm. you. And he said, you got to be kidding. Well, I sat on the phone listening to a 74-year-old guy cry. Yeah. Uh, he said, I, are you serious? And I said, I wouldn't do this to you, Pat. I have it. Uh, I need to fly up and meet with you and talk to you about the things we need to go through. So we sent him $900,000. And I and I can't tell you what a joy it was for me. This is before we formed settlement masters, but a joy that saw this guy that was desperate, yeah, and he had nowhere to go and no place to get the money, and he knew what he had to do if he had the money. Today, that ma- that poor, that uh, mag- I don't call it a magazine, that uh, catalog is is um, distributed annually around the country. And it's the biggest profit center of this company. Wow. So I can't tell you the joy I got. So that's one of the things that boosted me into knowing this is long before the the collapse of the COI marketplace that I've talked about, Mm -hmm. which has escalated this problem into tenfold what it was back then. But, you know, it gave me the idea that seniors have an issue. And I'm passionate about helping people. And I think every advisor has got to wake up because they've got to know that the, the room they, they talk about buy-on rumor, sell-on news. That's kind of an old mm-hmm. uh, cliche in the, in the investment community. The rumor is right now that seniors are getting hurt. Insurance companies are targeting the block of is, uh, policies issued between 95 and 2008. And these people are all in their 80s and 90s. They're targeting them to get them off the books. They're raising the premium as much as five times. Mm. It's unconscionable yeah and, it, and I, you know what frankly speaking, you can go where the money is and forget about doing good for other people but I believe that as a as an advisor you have the fiduciary responsibility to find these people to tell them that they need to have these contracts audited. And help
1: them out yeah and bob in our last podcast uh, we spoke a lot about what it means to team with settlement masters what you specifically do for your advisors uh but i'm sure we have new listeners so can you give us just a little uh, maybe maybe just the reason why an advisor should look to a brokerage firm like yours specifically to work with
2: well, I'm I'm going to commercialize now so forgive me. <laughs> Let's I go think for it. we have done everything that we could do to make sure we're protecting the client, the mm-hmm. advisor, and of course the fund we take care of also, but the most important thing is client first. And when we decided to do that, and and, and if you can find a firm that does that, go get them. But We decided, one, to create education for the advisor so he knows what to say to QSL. Mm -hmm. We're full partners with the advisor so he doesn't have to do this work in addition to all the work he does. He gets the bulk of the commissions and we do all the work. Uh, We give, now this is another thing, we do such a great job in compliance. We make sure that everybody signs off on keeping the contract or selling it, the economics. And we do a great job at evaluating the present value of the future benefit and what economic benefit. So it becomes very academic instead of emotional. Uh, we do that. And because of our compliance report, Eric, uh, when Lloyd's of London was not interested at all and still is not of issuing E&O on the people in the settlement world, they, we came to them to ask them because of the name to ensure us, we just came as a settlement broker. They said, no, we don't do this because the risks are too high. I sent them a compliance report that was tabbed and numbered, at a table of contents. In three days, they called me back and said, you would never see anything like this. If you have all your advisors follow your process, we'll issue a bundle of ENO for you and we'll allow you to extend that to each advisor on each wow. case. Yep. So you should make sure that you have a firm that really is interested in you, the client, uh, and making sure full transparency and they follow the regulations. And if they're capable of doing the extra things like we are, we've been in the business 50 years. So we we understand the life insurance business. Most Most settlement brokers have no clue outside of how to sell a contract.
1: All so, right. And we're wrapping up our time today, Bob. I'm going to ask you to do one more plug for me. What number should somebody call if they're interested in hearing more, learning more about uh, your brokerage firm specifically?
2: Yeah, the number is 877-927-7243. And when I say call me, you're not going to get a pitch. We are here as a backup team to top advisors around the country. We will ask you questions. We will be your back room. I think you'll be proud. We've got lots of referrals of of advisors all over the country. That's 877-927-7243. And thank you, Eric.
1: Thank you, Bob, so much. And thank you all for listening to the Acres of Diamonds podcast with Bob Larson. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Bob comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friend, family, or coworkers. Thanks again for listening. For everyone at The Settlement Masters, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Acres of Diamonds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.